We're going to read Acts 12 in, in its entirety. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the day, days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers that he departed and went, then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little, dis, uh, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. You may be seated. I ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. 
Father, we're grateful this morning for your word. This word that is eternal. This word that stands firm forever. This word that serves as a lamp to our feet and light to our path. This word that is living and active. Oh, Father, I pray this morning that it would be just that. As we hear what your word has to say. May you shine your light into our heart and our mind. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word this morning. Not just to glean new information, but Father, to take this word of yours and to be able then to live out this word. I pray we would not be content with just accumulating information, but we would desire and delight in taking what we learn from your word, what we're taught by your spirit, that we would then be able to implement and walk out in the power of the spirit. Teach us this morning. I pray we would be attentive to hear your word. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you take up this word, you begin to notice a recurring theme. As you turn the pages you compile character qualities of God, right? You could just turn page after page after page and ask the question, what does this have to say about God? What does this have to say about God? And you come up with quite a list of things about God. The word is filled with descriptors of who God is. It reveals his nature, reveals his character. His word reveals who he is. That's one of the reasons a Christ follower is under obligation to take up this book and read it. See, because if we delight in God and our relationship with Him through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then there should be a desire to get to know Him. We ought to want to know Him, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, to approach the Word with this taste and see attitude, as the psalmist describes it. Craving and understanding of who God is and how He operates and what He's called you to do in particular. Well, the text today that we have before us in Acts chapter 12 speaks a great deal about God's power. God's power. One of the many attributes of God. In fact, if we were just to trace a few this morning at the outset, we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 when God said, let there be light. And there was. His power brought it all into being. Or a few pages later, Exodus chapter 14, we see the Israelites and we see how God in in Exodus 14 verse 4 says, I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And you remember what he did in parting the waters, his power. Exodus chapter 20, you see his power manifested and visible on Mount Sinai and all the, the storms and the clouds and all that happened. Surrounding that, Mount Sinai, his power at work. We see even in Numbers chapter 9, it's interesting that God orchestrated things in such a way that when they were to move, he exhibited his power and there there was a visible sign of his power at work. And when they were to stay, there was a visible sign of that. And in Numbers chapter 9, at the command of the Lord, or the mouth of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. 
And even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. So it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days. According to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. The power of God at work. People were able to see God working. Second Kings, we see another example of this with Elisha and his servant. Remember that? The servant said, Master, what shall we do? What are we going to do here? And Elisha says, because he sees all these, the armies that are surrounding them. And Elisha says, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than are with them. And Elisha prayed. I said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Power of God at work. God's power in the Old Testament is evident. His intervention, his rescuing of his people, his delivering of his people out of Egyptian bondage. But God's power is not reserved only for the Old Testament, is it? It shines, I believe, most brilliantly through God the Son who came down out of the heavenlies to take on flesh. The power is manifested in his incarnation, in the many miracles he performed, and even in his death. I mean, think about all that happened while he was on the cross. Think of what happened shortly after the cross. His power is demonstrated and confirmed three days later when he's raised from the dead. His power is visibly seen when he ascends to go back to the Father. His power then takes the form of another counselor, the promised Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, our guide and greatest teacher, the one given to those who believe on Christ, the one who dwells within the believer forever. Church, I would want you to know that the power of God is put on display in this book of Acts. The power of God is put on display in this book of Acts through the person of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, wait for the power. Remember, wait for the power from on high. And when that power comes, you are to be witnesses to me with that power. That's the message. That's the structure, outline, if you will, of the entirety of this book of Acts. And we also be reminded of this power and its intended use and purpose as Jesus speaks in the end of Matthew 28. And lo, I'm with you always. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. How? How is he with us always? Through his power at work within us who believe. Now, as you're reading Acts 12, it, it, it might seem to some out of place or unnecessary to the flow of Luke's historical rendering of the early church and the movement of the gospel outward from Jerusalem and onward into the very end of the earth. A great observation question to ask, not just when you get at Acts 12, but it is a good question to ask pertaining to Acts 12. Why did this chapter get included in light of the purpose of this book? What does this chapter add to the theme and content of Acts? What is it that the Lord desires to communicate to his followers through these words here in Acts 12? And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19 this morning. Here's the big idea, I believe, of this text. God's power at work through God's people who pray. God's power at work. We're going to see it today in the text. God's power at work through God's people who pray. Okay? So God uses people 
in the Old Testament to accomplish his purposes. He uses people in the New Testament to accomplish his purposes as well. But did you know that God's desire is still to use people today to accomplish his purposes? See, let's, sometimes, sometimes we can read this and we, we get so far removed time-wise, we're some 2,000 years, right? We need to be reminded, I believe, sometimes that this word is relevant for us today as well. Okay, so this power of God at work in the people of the Old Testament, power of God at work in the people of the New Testament, power of God is still at work and God desires to use his people today to accomplish his purposes. People who, as we'll see today, are going to be about a work of prayer. I believe it's fitting that we label it and describe it as such. It is a work. Prayer is not something, I believe, that we just dive into and jump into and are ready to go into. In fact, if we're real honest about the situation, we would, most of us, be ashamed at how little we desire to pray. It's work. It is work. So what do we see here in Acts 12? We're going to take verses 1 through 5. We're going to take verses 6 through 11. And then we'll take verses 12 through 19. And we'll see here in these first five verses, uh, political persecution really is what it is. Persecution. Political, yes. And we'll see here in the text very clearly. It's political. Herod is harassing some from the church. He's targeted a group of people. It happens to be the church. Not the first time the church has been targeted, right? Not the first time as we've read through the book of Acts. Remember all the blessings the church has experienced of late in Acts 8, 9, 10, 11? The blessings, the movement of the gospel. It begins after persecution. Remember that? Stephen's martyrdom. The result of the persecution is a church that scatters and the church that scattered travels everywhere and they do according to Acts 8, 4 and according to Acts 11, 19 and 20. They are wherever the Lord plants them and they're scattering, they are doing what, church? Do you remember? What are they doing? Preaching the word. That's what they're doing. And in the course of time, the preached word takes root. Biblical conversions happen. Many turn to the Lord. Many are added to the Lord. And the gospel continues to move forward. And when you arrive at Acts chapter 12, it becomes apparent that not everyone is on board with the Gentiles receiving the word of God. As wonderful as, as that, has, that God has granted repentance to the Gentiles, it seems that some Jews in particular still had a tough time with what was going on, even to the point of favoring the death of the church leadership. Herod Agrippa I is the one we read about here in the text. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. He's a nephew of Herod Antipas, who served as a main player in the trials of Jesus. Herod I is appointed over Judea at a time when Claudius is emperor of Rome. And Herod would serve in this position from 41 to 44, which would be his death, which we'll get to next week. 
But Herod, being a shrewd political ruler, he understood very well how to manipulate others. He understood how to curry favor with a people that chafed, by and large, at Roman authority. And it seems that Herod Agrippa had gained some kind of audience, some kind of inroads with the Jewish people, and that he would regularly, even if it be but once a year, he would regularly read from the law. He also, at about this time, according to what we see in the text, was testing the waters on how to please his constituents, the Jewish people. Acts 12, 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, about that time. By the way, this is about the time when God's power was manifesting itself mightily. All right? About that time. That's what time it's been right here in the the life of the church. Herod stretches out his hand to harass some from the church. And he kills James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. Remember them? Fishermen? James is one of the sons of Zebedee. He's one of the three that you typically read of in Jesus' ministry, where Jesus would take along with him Peter, James, and John. It's this James. It's killed. You look at verse 3. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Here's the political angle. You see it very clearly here. He killed John with the sword and heard the reaction from the Jews, and he saw that it pleased them to remove James from the picture. And so as king, he he was seeking to take advantage of this momentum with the, the people, and he seizes Peter, another one of the Jerusalem church leaders. And at this point... I believe it's important to ask the question, where'd God's power go? How could God allow such a thing to happen? James, killed. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 37 through 40. You might remember the account. In one of the Gospels, we see that James and John come before Jesus, and the other one we see the mother of Zebedee, right, of, of James and John come and asking about seats on the right and left. Remember that passage of Scripture? It's this passage of Scripture. And, and, and here in Mark 10, 37 to 40, they said to Jesus, grant us that we may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you, you do not know what you ask. Are, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That cup, by the way, that cup of suffering? And be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able And so Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. I want to stop right there because that's significant to where we're at in Acts chapter 12. Jesus tells them here in Mark's gospel, yes, you will indeed. You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. Herod sees what he does as simply doing a favor to the Jewish people. But we see here, when we look at what Jesus says in Mark's gospel, James's death is essentially prophetical. Christ has said that, James, you're going to, you are going to drink the cup. Indeed, you are. 
the same cup of suffering, James, you're going to encounter. He doesn't define it in Mark's gospel, but we see it come to fruition right here in Acts chapter 12. And in that same line, you may be thinking, well, what of John's suffering? What about his cup of suffering? Well, you might be reminded of Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, I was on the island of Patmos. Why? It was just for vacation? No. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, John was exiled for his faith. I want you to see something here in the text in Acts 12. God's power is not absent at the beginning here. God's power is not absent. It may seem as though the world is having its way right here, but there is nothing that happens apart from God's knowledge, apart from his understanding. He knows all things. He sees all things. He specializes in working all things together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God's power, though, we need to understand, his power does not always equate to getting your way. God's power doesn't always get translated in the way that you would like to see it done. His power at work does not always align with how you think things ought to be. You see, when you take God at his word and you understand that his thoughts and his ways are higher than yours, that you are the clay and that he is the potter, that you are the created being and that he's the creator, it's hard to settle for very long in the mire of asking the question, why? Now that may come as a very natural question to the natural man. But the spiritual man is able, by the grace of God at work in him, to navigate the difficulties of this life in light of the hope that lies within him. You see, because the spiritual man serves a risen Savior, he's enabled to declare, it is well with my soul when all the world around him is crumbling. When the crumbling starts to occur, the spiritual man understands that he still has Christ. Job was a man familiar with grief and suffering. And he says these words. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a testimony for you. One other point as a follow up to God's power. From what I can tell in the scriptures, God does not take lightly the earthly king who abuses his granted power to bring about destruction upon God's people. You might recall the psalm, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, and just reading a few verses in Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Church, being against the Lord is not the place you want to be. Okay? Against the Lord... And against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Fast forward a few verses, verse 10. Now therefore be wise, O kings. 
Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Herod right here is harassing the church as Acts 12 begins. Things don't look very good. But in a few verses, Herod will be experiencing the deep displeasure and wrath of the Almighty God, the King of Kings. And things are going to look a bit differently. God has not gone anywhere. I want you to see that in the text. He's not abandoned James. Quite the contrary. I believe he's fulfilled the prophetic word of Christ himself earlier in the Gospels. Remember the context. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Why is that important? Well, during the Passover time, it was unlawful to try a prisoner. So here again, in an, in an effort to appease the Jewish people, Herod Agrippa abides by Jewish law, does the right thing according to Jewish law, and locks Peter up for the time, intending, the text says, to bring him out, bring him before the people, After the Passover. So I want you to notice the attention that Herod gives to this prisoner. He put him in prison. He delivered him to four squads of soldiers. These squads made up of four men. Four squads of four. If we do the math, I believe that's 16. That's a lot of soldiers for one man. And they would rotate. Keeping watch over Peter. And we see... How it was they kept watch. This was Herod's prized catch. The one he was looking forward to bringing out. And to do the same thing. With Peter as he did with James. Acts 12 verse 5 says. Peter was therefore kept in prison. See Passover was about a week. When you take the Passover and then the. The feast of unleavened bread together. About a week. Seven eight days in length. And it was during the Passover time. When Herod locks Peter up. There's some time that goes by here. Let's understand that context. Time for Peter to sit among the chains with guards right next to him and outside his door. Time for Herod to anticipate more praise, perhaps, and adulation from the Jewish people over what he's doing. But I want you to look at the end of verse 5. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant prayer was offered to God for him, that's Peter, by the church. There's time as well given for the church to be in prayer. Now the text leads you to believe that Peter was kept in prison for a time. It also leads you to believe that the church was earnestly, that word earnestly, praying. If you look in Luke's gospel, it's interesting that this is also found in Luke's gospel. Remember Luke is the one writing the book of Acts as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. But in Luke's gospel, we see in chapter 22, while Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not mine, but yours be done. An angel comes, appears to him, strengthening him. And then in verse 44 of Luke 22, we read these words. And being in agony, he, that's Jesus, he prayed more earnestly. There's the word, earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
the church, constant prayer was offered to God. Earnest prayer. Diligent prayer. Ongoing was lifted up for Peter at this time. I want you to see that God's power is at work even in and and perhaps especially in the waiting. In the waiting. Through God's people who are constantly, earnestly praying for their brother Peter. God's power at work through God's people who pray. Herod's hand is stretched out to harass some in the church. Persecution's wave is rolling once again over the church. And the question is, how are they going to respond? I'm reminded of what happened to Saul and what Saul heard on the, while he was on the ground, mind you, <laughs> traveling to Damascus. He heard those words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember, Saul had been persecuting God's church, and yet God asked, why are you persecuting me? The church is the body of Christ, over which Christ serves as head. And anything, anyone that stands in opposition to his church will find himself in a difficult place, having to answer to the king of all kings. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 16, verse 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Herod's day is coming, but for now God is going to use this time of persecution for his glory and put before his people another test. How are they going to respond to persecution again? Verse 5 is a good indicator of their response. And it ought to be an indicator of our own response, even yet today when trials come our way. Prayer. Earnest prayer. Diligent prayer. So with much of the context now in place, let's look at how things unfold in prison. Verses 6 through 11 recount the miraculous events from prison. When Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now, the text tells us that the time had come for Herod to take Peter out of prison, where he would undergo a trial of some kind, and more or less imminent execution. The result would be pretty much what happened to James. It was during this particular night where we see Peter sleeping. He's chained between two soldiers. In just a few hours, Herod would order Peter to be brought out of the prison to stand trial. And the text says that Peter was sleeping. Question, how do you sleep at a time like that? How do you sleep knowing that's going to happen? I was reminded of, of some of the words in Scripture. Psalm 4, verse 8, where Psalm says, I will, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For Why? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And then also, also one of the other Scriptures, Proverbs 3. You might remember this. If you read through the Proverbs frequently, you, you, you recall, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. 
Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. I believe for Peter, the Lord was his rock, his stronghold, his confidence. You see, Acts 12 verse 6 presents a picture of impossibility. I want you to see that in the text. A picture of impossibility. Time is about to run out. Peter's fast asleep, chained between two guards with two other guys standing outside the prison door keeping watch. And Luke is presenting a vivid picture of Peter in the midst of an impossible rescue. This is impossible. Church, God specializes in the impossible rescue. Did you know that? Verses 7 through 11 capture the impossible rescue of Peter. And at the same time, turns your attention to the impossible rescue that he brought about in your own life if you sit here today in Christ. Look at how verse 7 begins. Keeping in mind the impossibility portrait from verse 6. Now behold... In other words, look and see. Look at this. Pay attention. An angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. See, just about the time when Herod is about to bring Peter out of the prison, the Lord sends a messenger into the prison. This is good. God's timing is always the right timing, isn't it? Divine deliverance. Divine deliverance is in motion right here. That's what we see in these verses, 6 through 11. Divine deliverance. In fact, we see as his messenger shows up. Psalm 103.20 came to mind. Bless the Lord, you his angels. Who? What do they do? They excel in strength. What, else? what do they do? They, they do his word. Heeding his voice. Psalm 103 verse 20. Gives us some understanding of these messengers from God. And as a student of the word, you might also recall how God has operated previously when God's people have been imprisoned for their faith in Christ. Acts chapter 4, we, we saw that they're imprisoned, they're scolded, don't do it, and they're let go. They give testimony together. In Acts 5, they find themselves back in prison for preaching in the name of Jesus. And I want you to look at Acts 5, verses 19 and 20. Because as they're in prison, it was at night. And in verse 19 of Acts 5 says, At night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. It's interesting to me that in rescuing them out of prison, he's not calling them to go far, far, far away on this occasion. He's simply saying, Go back out in the street and preach the word. The very thing you got arrested for, I want you to go back out and preach the name of Christ. But we see an example of how God showed up and how God had delivered them previously. Now, Peter had been in prison before. Maybe that's why he was asleep. He, he knew what God could do. Huh? He'd been there. He'd been able to experience what God had done. He'd witnessed God's power firsthand. Now behold, the text says in verse 7, Luke is drawing attention to what's coming. That picture of impossibility that I painted in 
the previous sentence, I want you to take notice now of what comes. Luke's saying, an angel of the Lord stood by Peter, a light shone into the prison. What is the angel sent to do, church? There are three commands. I want you to see them, three. And there's also three instances of obedience on the part of Peter. First command, arise quickly. But before he says arise quickly, notice he has to strike Peter on the side to wake him up. I can resonate with that sometimes. Being struck on the side, being nudged, moved. You're in a deep sleep and you just need somebody to move you. Peter's in prison. He's chained to these two guards. And angel comes in, light comes in and struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, arise quickly. Now the first thought that, that, that Peter probably had, you know, outside of the grogginess from being asleep. I'm chained to these two guys. And you're telling me to arise quickly. What's the very next thing in the text? His chains fell off his hands. You see, what God calls you to do, he's also going to orchestrate it so that it can happen. He's calling Peter to rise. Get up. His chains fell off. He's able to get up. What's the second thing? Verse 8. Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. What's Peter's response? And so he did. What's the third command? He said, put on your garment and follow me. What's Peter's response? So he went out and followed him. Okay, okay, okay. Obedience. You know, when we get to verse 7 and 8, It's hard not to think about the words of the hymn that we'll be singing later this morning. Where the writer of the hymn, I believe in many ways, uses this portion of text and applies it spiritually to us. The verse goes, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free and I rose and went forth and followed thee. You know, as you, as you read this text, it is a praise to God for his divine deliverance in your own life, isn't it? If you sit here today in Christ, you've been divinely delivered, church. By grace through faith, you have been delivered. You were dead, fast bound in sin and nature's night, but God made you alive. His quickening ray pierced and penetrated your dark situation and he broke your bonds of captivity. He set you free for what? To go in and out to find pasture, John chapter 10. To listen to his voice, to follow him with the remainder of your days. The impossible rescue of God here in Acts chapter 12 is a reminder, spiritually speaking, of what God has done and will do for all those who believe on the name of Jesus. Notice verse 9. He went, followed him, and did not know, that's key for it, did not know, did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now, you kind of resonate with this, with Peter, because let's remember, not too far back, not too long ago, he's in Caesarea. Well, actually, he's in Joppa at the time. He goes to Caesarea. 
Remember the vision that he received three times? Three times got this vision. And so Peter finds himself here in Acts 12, wondering as he's following the angel, as he's obedient, (laughs) but he's still wondering as he's moving, whether this current situation, is this real or am I just imagining it? Is Is this a vision? Read verse 10. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Now the angel of the Lord accomplished his mission for which he was sent. And once he navigates Peter through the guard posts and out of the main gate of the prison, he leads him down another street and then disappears, leaving Peter standing in the middle of the street at night in a state of wonder. Then you get to verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, (laughs) when he had come to himself, you get the idea that he really hadn't caught all of this until we get to this point here in verse 11. Now I know for certain. We contrast that with verse 9. In verse 9, remember what verse 9 said? He did not know. He did not know if this was real or not. Now we're at verse 11 and he says, now He's standing here by himself. Out in the middle of the road, it's nighttime, middle of the night. Now now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Divine deliverance is recognized and confirmed by Peter right here. So what does he do? What's he do upon recognizing this? Where's he going to turn? He can't just stand here in the middle of the street. At some point, the guards are going to realize he's gone and realize that their top secret prisoner is no longer chained inside the prison cell. So Luke is about to show the reader here in the text an astonished assembly in 12 through 19. It begins in verse 12. So when he had considered this, considered what? considered what God had done. When he considered what God had done, when he thought about what just happened, Peter wanted to tell the good news. He wanted to testify of God's divine deliverance. You know, spiritually speaking, as we consider this for just a moment, when you consider what all God has done for you, does that prompt you to consider telling others about it? You know, and when you think about his divine deliverance in your life, how quick are you to give testimony? The text leads you to believe that Peter knew of Mary's house previously. He'd spent some time there with the brethren, probably some speculation over whether this was the house where the believers gathered in Acts 1 in the waiting. Some thought maybe this could also be the house where they shared the Lord's Supper, perhaps before Jesus went to the cross. At any rate, Peter goes to this house. He's familiar, it seems, with this house. This was the place to go. And Luke tells the reader at the end of verse 12 that many were gathered together praying. Verse 5 and verse 12 are connected, church. Verse 5 says that while Peter was in prison, over the time Peter was in prison, over that same period of time, there was this constant, earnest 
ongoing prayer being offered to God for Peter by the church. And so now verse 12, he arrives at the house of Mary and we're introduced to this person named John whose surname was Mark who will be instrumental. He'll be going on a missionary journey here shortly with Paul and Barnabas. And we're able to see that many were gathered in this house praying. Peter hasn't seen this yet. Peter doesn't know of it yet. Or perhaps he does. Perhaps going to Mary's house for Peter is a reminder of what goes on in Mary's house. Perhaps for Peter it's a reminder of what is always happening in Mary's house. Perhaps Mary's house is a praying house. The people gathered there are ones who are praying. And Peter, perhaps having been in that home on other occasions, understands that there is much praying going on in that home. He goes to the home. The text tells us he goes. And what we see here is a somewhat humorous event recorded. I, I, I believe it's humor. It's humorous to me. Peter goes to the house, knocks at the door of the gate. Get the idea there's this gate and then there's some distance in, into the gathering area where the people are, are praying. Peter knocks over here at the gate. You also get the idea that they can't see the person on the other side of the gate necessarily. So one of the things that they probably did to assure that the person knocking at the door was someone they knew and were okay letting in, they would oftentimes want to know, who is it? I mean, the text would lend us to believe some of this. Peter knocked at the door. This girl named Rhoda, the servant girl named Rhoda, came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, she recognized his voice. When she recognizes his voice, look at what she does. Because of her gladness. She was glad to hear Peter's voice. She did not open the gate. But ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Now remember, who are they praying for? Who are they constantly, diligently, earnestly praying for? Peter. And there's a knock. And Rhoda comes. Who is it? Uh, it's Peter. She recognizes. Ah, she goes and she tells him, Peter's at the gate. Look at the response. They said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting. I'd love to have seen this scene. This is one of the scenes I'd love to see. I, I just, I'd love to see this. She kept insisting. It was so. So they said, it is his angel. And I, that's sort of ironic that they say it's his angel because there was truly an angel that rescued Peter and brought him to the gate. But the next sentence is, is good. Now Peter continued knocking. Okay, they're over here. 
Rhoda's in here in the house and talking and say, Peter's at the gate. No, he's not. You're, no. You're, yeah, it is. No. It's just, all that's going on. Peter's over here. Peter wants to get out of that street. Peter wants to get inside somewhere. And then he wants to be gone. See, he's got a message to communicate. He's got a message to communicate before he goes somewhere. And so he continued knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, now they saw him. They opened the door. They saw him. When they saw him, text says they were astonished. We have an astonished assembly right here. They're astonished. They're amazed. I believe this astonished assembly does what many of us would do in a similar situation. They, they, they began to make a lot of noise. There was a lot of stirring, maybe people jumping up and down, maybe people hugging each other. I don't know what they were doing. The text doesn't tell us exactly what they were doing. But we get the idea they were making some level of noise. You see, the one they've been praying for is standing before them. God's power had been at work through God's people praying. And yet I believe the text causes one to ask the question, why is the assembly so astonished when Peter arrives at Mary's gate? When Rhoda informs them that Peter's at the gate and they they don't believe her and they think she's just out of her mind. This church that had so earnestly been in prayer to God for Peter. Do do they really believe that God can rescue him from the hands of Herod? Is their faith perhaps at this moment? Is their faith shaken a little bit in light of James' execution? Do they truly believe God can answer their prayers? Let me ask, do you believe that God can answer your prayers? Do you believe that your prayers matter to God? I was listening this week to to a message on prayer. And there were some, some very good questions for us to consider in light of this text here. In light of interceding on behalf of others. How many of us are seriously involved in praying for others? Are there people who would notice a change in their lives if you stopped praying for them? Are there missionaries who would notice a difference because you stopped praying for them? Or conversely, began praying for them? Do your prayers affect anybody for God? I would hope and pray that you're praying for God's word to go forth with power on a Sunday morning. And I I want, just to to make it verbally known, I, I want, desire, need, ask for your prayers, church, and the elders. We need your prayers. But you see, interceding prayer is is not simply offering up a request for someone. Intercessory prayer involves three parties, right? You, the one spoken for, and the one you're speaking to. See, when we think about offering up a praise or, you know, many of those other kinds of prayers are 
There are two parties involved. You and the Lord. Intercession is somewhat unique in that there are three. It also takes into consideration a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you in a right relationship with the Lord? Are you going through the motions? How often do you tell other people that you're praying for them or you'll be praying and you don't ever do it? The church in Acts 12 is praying in earnest for Peter. Praying to God for Peter. Not praying to man, but to God on behalf of Peter. Praying to God who alone has the power to deliver Peter from his situation. You know, really, as we look at Acts 12, the picture of intercession comes down to faith. Do you believe God can operate in the midst of what seems to be impossible? Are you praying for that brother or sister, fully convinced that what God has promised, he is also able to perform, Romans 4, 21. I want to get to verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. See, Peter, Peter testifies to what happened. But I want, to see, I want you to see how he does it. He motions for them to keep silent. And he says, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. You know, I'm reminded here in this text, in verse 17, as Peter declares to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Peter goes to this house. Instead of just leaving town, he goes to the house where he believes many would be gathered. And they were. And he shares a testimony. His testimony is characterized by what the Lord has done. Church, someone needs to hear your testimony too. What the Lord is doing in your life. Not all the wonderful things that you've done. Be sure that when the Lord opens a door to testify that you declare what God has done in your life. How has the Lord rescued you? Are you able to articulate the wonderful works of God in your life? One writer said, all of us owe a greater debt than perhaps we realize to those who have prayed to God on our behalf. We oftentimes don't think about that. The people who are praying for us through situations, there are people praying. Oftentimes we walk through and we don't even realize the power of prayer. There is someone praying for you. Someone, perhaps, when you go home tonight and you're trying to figure out your finances and you're trying to figure out how you're going to be able to pay next month's bills and you don't know how it's all going to work. And your mind is thinking about all kinds of things regarding your situation. And while you're thinking about that, there's someone or someones down on their knees in prayer praying for you, praying to God for you, for your need. God's power is at work, church, through his people who are praying. You see, your prayer life, which is something according to Acts 2, verse 42, that we are to continue steadfastly in. Prayer life is not a supplement but a foundation upon which to build 
the relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not an option. It's not an extra. It's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a necessity within the body of Christ. Pray for one another. Hard to do that when you're consumed with self. Hard to do that when you're not here on a regular basis and don't know the needs of the body. Hard to do that when you have little interest or desire to have relationships with other parts of the body. Hard to do when your pattern of praying is Sunday only. You see, your prayers for one another will come into focus as you are connected to Christ and as you stay connected one to another in the body of Christ. The conclusion of the matter is put forward in 18 and 19. We see Herod finds out, he examines the guards, has an interview, executes them. And so the text begins and ends, there's these, there are bookends here, with what seems like unjust killings. First James, and now with these guards that are on duty. And Herod has a direct hand in both of these killings. His granted power is being abused and God will not turn a blind eye to this situation. God's power, you see, overrules the power of Herod. God's power, church, is always at work among the nations and rulers of this age. And I believe right here is important for us to consider this. You know, there's some talk these days of what's going to happen with trouble brewing in Syria. And maybe some of you have kept up with it a lot more than I have. I, I just want to say this about what's going on and how that applies here in our world and with us. God's power is bigger than any nuclear power man can devise. God's power is bigger than any chemical warfare threat, any terrorist activity alert. God's power is not only at work at large around the globe, but God's power is at work in your life. God's power is at work in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he said that he desires to work in your life. And I was reminded of this in John 14, 23. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Listen to this. And we will come to him and make our home with him. It's interesting to find that Peter pens these words in his second epistle. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. To life. How to live this life. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The hymn writer says his power can make you what you ought to be. God's power is at work here in this text. I want you to see God's power, though, is also at work in God's people who pray. God's people are intended to be, church, a praying people. The church saw a need. Peter was in prison. The church saw a power sufficient to meet the need. They prayed to God. The church came together to cast their cares upon the Lord. Together they prayed. Together, they prayed. What are the needs around you? Do you recognize in God the power to sufficiently meet the need as he would deem appropriate and best to further his kingdom and bring praise to his name? And then what are you doing about it? What is the church's response to such a text? 
I believe for many of us. Repentance is in order here. (laughs) Turning from seeing prayer as supplemental, an add-on to what we do. When you feel like, when I get to it. Have you ever found that when you, when you put something in that category of when I get to it, it hardly ever gets done? How often do we do that with prayer? When in reality, prayer ought to be the foundation. It ought to be the very thing we build upon. The starting point. Turning from that way of seeing prayer. Turning to God. In prayer, church, God's power. God's power is still at work through God's people who pray. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, we see in the text another round of persecution arriving at the doorstep of your church. We also see, in light of that persecution, we also see your divine deliverance. We see there is a church that is astonished when Peter shows up at the gate. Oh, Father, I pray that as a church that we would see, first and foremost, our our need for prayer the power of prayer, this picture that you've given to us in your word of how you work in and through those who work in prayer and are diligently seeking you in prayer, interceding for others. Father, I pray that this church, not only as individuals making up this church, but collectively as a body, I pray that we would be diligent to pray together. Church, we're, we're, we're also guilty, uh, Father, of making excuses as to why we can't get together to pray. See in the word here, these believers were in this home, probably in the middle of the night, praying for this need. Father, I pray that through your spirit you would draw us unto yourself that we would see you as the one sufficient power necessary in order to see your working before our eyes, Lord. Peter shows up at the gate. Father, when answered prayer comes, I pray, Father, we would be quick to give you glory and give you praise. We'd be quick to be able to testify of what you have done. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your great rescue of us in our lives. Father, I pray that we would be quick to tell others of the wonderful work of God in our own lives. May our tongues speak often of this and testify in a great way of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Father, for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would change us In light of what your word says here, you would change our hearts in a manner that would please you. 
pray in Jesus' name. Amen.